I want to start with prayer this morning, and I want to pray for two different pastors and two different churches. And I think uh, um, I don't need to give any explanation. We'll just pray, and you'll get enough, figure enough out. <clears throat> Lord, this morning, first, uh, before we climb into the Word together, just want to say thank you for worship and song. I'm thankful for breath and for um, giftedness and music. Thankful for what it does to the heart and how it stirs us and readies us to enjoy you. I'm thankful that in a lot of ways it escorts, it escorts us into the throne room and we sense that we are there now and we have enjoyed some rich and great truths about who you are. We're thankful for the word that exposes those truths. We're thankful for the giftedness that you put on people's hearts to um, worship and music. Lord, before we climb in, I want, to, I want to just lift up two pastors and their families and their churches. I want to pray for Roger and uh, Judy Ratliff, Evansicle Baptist. And uh, I want to pray for Roger as he's dealing with uh, the news about Judy's cancer. And um, I want to pray for Judy for just this otherworldly perspective that sees a big God who's good, who works all things according to the kind intention of your will who works all things for good for those who are called according to your purpose. Lord, I pray for Judy right now with Roger and with those who know them, pray for healing. That's the, clearly the desire of our heart. We know that you are able and we share that as a desire. Lord, right behind that, we pray for care, for the do- or, um, care from the doctors that gives glory to you. I pray for wise and careful treatment. Pray for response to the medication. Ultimately, um, we pray that you will receive all glory for whatever healing takes place. And Lord, in the same breath, in the same conversation, and same prayer with you, we pray for your will to be done and for your glory to be on display. Pray that Van Sickle will see a great and big God through this. I pray that Roger will point toward you and your goodness and your sovereignty. And we pray that their faith will be grown through this time. Lord, I also want to pray for another pastor in Quinlan, a guy named Tony Brown. Just thankful for a shared burden. Thankful for newly identified like-mindedness. Lord, I pray for Tony that he'll not feel alone as he serves there in Quinlan. But that he'll see that there are brothers that are um, contending in the faith in their context nearby. And that he'll be encouraged. Lord, in whatever way possible, whatever way that you put in front of us, whether it's an official way or just a daily way as we serve and live alongside people that are part of these other churches, I pray that you'll find us cheering for your greatness in those contexts. Lord, I pray that we'll be praying for fidelity of the message in our other churches in this community and wanting your name to be enjoyed in those places. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We turn this time over this morning to you. I pray that I'll not be in a hurry to preach. I pray that your people will not be in a hurry to listen. I pray that whatever distractions that we may have right now, whatever things that might be on our plate for this afternoon or for lunchtime or this evening, that we can park those and we can recognize that we are standing and sitting and enjoying and kneeling at your feet pray that we will be attentive, engaged. 
pray too as we consider these two chapters that we'll see the amazing work that was done and finished in the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 18. <clears throat> I'm going to read two chapters this morning. And uh, it's really, I'm sharing that with you for the sake of preparation, not for apology. <laughs> uh, preparation so that you can engage. I think these two chapters need to be seen together. It's the arrest and the trials and the crucifixion of Christ. And I want us to look at them together. And this morning we're, we're going to consider the title of the message is a question of authority. So we're going to consider God's uh, work and his ultimate authority behind these two chapters. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, in the original language it says, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground appropriately. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you've given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Big-Eared Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, we believe this to be John. He often refers to himself in the third person. So the other, other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You're also not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. <clears throat> Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, 
Why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. Ironic. But that they could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Implying, we'd like for you to, though. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What even is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, Hey guys, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. An easy word to read. Flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, This is our focal passage this morning. Where are you from? 
And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Let's take a different tack on this thing. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat. Pilate sits while Jesus stands. Ironic. He sits down at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Hey, Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews. Rather, write... This man said, I'm king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, John, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, or that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. 
For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of Passover, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. From all appearances, as you're looking at these two chapters, it looks like other people determine Christ's fate. If we just look at the story without knowing the end, without knowing the big picture, all that surrounds this, where we witness to these events, we would likely entertain the thought that evil people determine the fate of our Lord. I want to take you back through some of the verbs and the object of those verbs. Little English quiz. Not really. English reminder, refresher. In the English language, oftentimes in a sentence, you have the subject, you verb, and then you have an object. Subject, verb, object. So in these next few sentences, I want you to notice who's inflicting the verb on who. I want you to notice that Christ is the direct object of these many verbs inflicted by the hands of evil men. Notice these sentences beginning in chapter 18, verse 2. Judas, who betrayed him. Chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus. And they bound him. The next verse, verse 13. They led him first to Annas. Verse 19, the high priest questions Jesus. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck Jesus. Jesus is the direct object. Struck him with his hand saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Ugly verbs inflicted on our Lord. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 28, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus, summoned. Take in these verbs and see who's on the receiving end. The direct object is the what or the who gets the, the, the who receives the verb. Jesus is receiving all these ugly verbs, arrested, bound, betrayed, led, questioned, struck, sent, bound, led, called. And then in verse 39 and 40, the way I would summarize it in chapter 18, we'll just read it because we're in no hurry. 
You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate offers a trade and the people call for the release of Barabbas. They traded Jesus for a robber. Chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. An easy word to read, not an easy word to receive. Floggings took place with an instrument called a flagrum. It was a whip that had many strands. It wasn't just one single like Raiders of the Lost Ark sort of whip. This thing had many strands and on the tips of it, it had things that were tied into the tip of it. Like a piece of glass or a rock, or a piece of lead. And this is what Jesus was flogged with. Easy to read, isn't it? He was flogged with a flagrum. These little chunks that were tied at the end of the flagrum, as this whip was pulled away, this thing would take chunks of flesh with it. That's an ugly verb. Flogged. Verse 2, the soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head and arrayed him in purple. Verse 3, they came up to him, mocking him. They came up to him, striking him. Striking him. I don't know if any of you have ever been hit in the head before, but it's not like the movies. It doesn't make a sound like, like the you know, kung fu movies and stuff like that. Boxing movies. It makes a sound like meat, like meat hitting meat, and it is a sick sound. That's the verb that's inflicted on Christ. He's mocked, and he is struck. And then verse 13 through 16, Pilate brought Jesus out, and Jesus stands while Pilate sits in the seat of judgment. Something's out of order there. And Pilate announces, Behold your king. And the crowd say, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. So they delivered him to be crucified. In verse 17, They took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place of the skull. Verse 18, They crucified Jesus. Easy to read, but an ugly verb. Verse 23, they took his garments. Verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Verse 38, they came and took away his body. Verse 42, the tomb was close at hand and they laid Jesus there. Some crazy heartbreaking verbs if you really take them in. If you really examine it, you realize that Christ is on the receiving end of most of the verbs in these two chapters. And they're not not nice, cuddly verbs. They're ugly verbs. If you climb into this story and imagine the, imagine the emotions that John must have felt as he's recording these two chapters. He's writing them and writing in great detail. He must have felt great emotion because he watched, eyewitness watched Judas betray him. He watched the Jews arrest him. He watched them bind him. He watched them lead him. He watched them question him. He watched the Romans strike him. He watched the Jews trade him, the mob. Likely the same mob that shouted, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord just a week earlier. What heartbreak must he have felt as he watched these things happen? As they watched the Romans flog him. As they watched him being delivered over. As they saw them crucify him. As they saw his body lowered down and laid in the tomb. All of these many verbs of these two chapters by Judas, by Annas, by Caiaphas, by the mob, by the soldiers, by Pilate. From all appearances, it looks like the mob and the Jews and Pilate are in control. Now, a side note before we continue. I want to encourage you to climb into this passage. Don't read it like it's some separate event, but just make the effort to climb in and try and experience, like John, for example's heartbreak. Climb in and experience the drama. If you've given your life to something, three years, for example, you left everything to go follow someone for three years and you see them betrayed, arrested, bound, questioned, flogged, crucified. Climb into these verbs, experience the heartache of these verbs, and then by the end of the morning when we climb back out, you'll be a different person. And you will view situations where you're getting a beating from somebody very differently. If you don't climb into this story, though, you miss it. It's about somebody else. And it has nothing to do with you. It's just historical fact. But if you climb in it and you become part of the story, you will leave changed. That's a side note and an encouragement. Experience the drama of this morning. This trial. This crucifixion, this beating, this flogging, this betrayal. And you'll leave change. Now back to where we were. It looks like the mob, the Jews and the soldiers and Pilate are in control. You've left everything to follow this Christ. And it looks like everything that you thought is being lost. Everything that you thought to be true. Everything that you planted your feet on is lost. Now. Christ introduces a new and unseen but ultimate reality. Look again at chapter 19, verse 9. Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. But Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. I want you to realize, too, this is post-flogging. He's got a crown of thorns on his head as he's saying this. Blood likely pouring down his face. You know how head wounds are. They bleed. He's got about, I don't know, 50 stuffed down on his head. He's been struck and beaten. He's been flogged. He's got chunks of flesh out of his back. He's got a purple robe wrapped around him where blood is pouring through his back, saturating the purple. And he's saying, you would have no authority at all unless it had been given to you by my father. It looks like you're the man, but guess what? You're not. And the irony... He says that Pilate's authority is given him by his father. 
Makes me think about Peter when he cut off big ear Mal- Malchus's ear. He tells Peter, he says, put your sheath, your sword back in his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the Father's cup. It's not the Roman cup. It's not the Jewish cup. It's not Judas's cup. This Father, or this cup has been given me by my Father because my Father is the ultimate reality. He's the ultimate authority. My Father is in complete control. If you've climbed into this story, if you've taken on some of these verbs, if you've quaked together with John, if your heart has been broken, you've got to realize right now that we can't trust our eyes. We can't trust our ears. We can't trust our smell. We can't trust our sense about a situation. If you did, your eyes would see senseless injustice. Be Mary, his mother. Senseless injustice, criminal injustice. Your eyes would see a man seated, a creature seated in the judgment seat while the creator stands. Your eyes would see that man and say, man, something's messed up here. If you trusted your eyes, you would see those things. If you trusted your ears, you would hear mocking. You would hear insult. You would hear that meat sound of fists hitting a head and a face. If you trust your nose, you would smell blood and death. And your sense would be that all was lost at the hands of sinful men. But Christ says, guess what? There's an unseen reality going on right here. It's not apparent. But it's ultimate. Turn to Acts chapter 2. This is such an appropriate passage preached by such an appropriate guy. In Acts chapter 2, the context is seven weeks after Christ was crucified. Okay, he was crucified at Passover. Pentecost is seven weeks later. Now, hopefully you remember who the chicken of Passover was. I don't have my phone with me, so I can't do the cock-a-doodle-doo, the rooster crow. But hopefully you remember who that was. Peter, scared of a maiden girl. Seven weeks later, only seven weeks later, he's the bold preacher of Pentecost. Preaching not in some different place. He's preaching in the same place where his Lord was crucified. Listen to what he says. Men of Israel, verse 22, chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is addressing the same group of men that crucified his Lord seven weeks earlier, and he's pointing to both of these things. Reality, very real reality, blood, pain, a flagrum with rocks and glass, Pilate, a mob. But he's also addressing the ultimate reality behind it. The ultimate authority. Peter's addressing what it looked like 
in verse 23, the second part, it looked like you crucified and, and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And you know what? That's reality. But in the, verse, or in, the, in the sentence before that, he addresses what was really going on. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's the ultimate reality. There's what it looked like, and then there's what's really going on. It looked like Judas and Annas and Caiaphas and a mob and Pilate and soldiers and centurions had authority in this terrible hour. But it seems God was the ultimate authority. It says, you crucified this Jesus and killed him by the hands of lawless men. That's what it looked like. Lawless men had taken Christ's life, and that is quite real. But the ultimate reality behind the apparent reality was this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. A definite plan. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God didn't say, you know what, i got to come up with a new plan. i got to figure out a way to fix this. This plan was ordained before time even began. This definite plan of the cross was something that God ordained and foreknew. God was the ultimate authority behind this tragic hour. He was working out a definite plan for glory. He was the ultimate authority behind Judas' betrayal. I want you to see that. I want you to know that. Without authoring the sin... He's the ultimate authority behind Judas' betrayal. Chapter, th- chapter 13 tells us that Satan filled Judas and then he went out and followed through on his betrayal. But we know that Satan doesn't even scratch his behind except for, by permission from the living God. God was the ultimate authority behind Judas' betrayal. He's the ultimate authority behind the arresting soldiers. He's the ultimate authority behind the apparent authority of Annas, behind the apparent authority of Caiaphas, behind the apparent authority of the soldiers, behind the apparent authority of the mob and Pilate. He was the ultimate and unseen authority all the while. It reminds me of the end of Genesis. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. You may be familiar with the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is beaten up by his brothers, thrown into a pit. He's kind of a punk. He's thrown into a pit, sold off into slavery, goes to Egypt, ends up working for a woman that has the hots for him, really working for the man, and the wife makes the move on him, lies about him. He goes to prison and is forgotten in prison. And then through a series of events, interpreting dreams and things like that, he ends up in a place of authority in Egypt. Famine hits, and this group, this family, his brothers, have to come to Egypt just to survive. They end up moving to Egypt. Jacob, his father, dies. And the brothers turn to each other and say, Ooh, now that dad's dead, I know Joseph is going to do us in. The only reason he hadn't killed us before now is out of honor to Jacob. So they come to his, or they come to Joseph. And Joseph says to them, he says, Do not fear, brothers, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. That was the apparent work going on. That's a very real pit with a very real bottom. It was very real slavery with a very real wicked woman, Potiphar's wife. 
It's a very real jail. And what you guys intended, you meant for evil. But God meant it for good. The very same events, God was working for good. You authored them, and God turned them into good. That's the kind of God that we have. Because God was the ultimate and unseen and absolute authority and reality behind each of those events. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's brothers, in John 18 and 19 version, we could say Judas, Annas, Caiaphas, soldiers, a Jewish mob, and Pilate. What y'all meant for evil, God meant for ultimate and absolute good. If we climbed into that morning with John and experienced those ugly verbs, we would think all was lost. But we know that God was working good. It's called the doctrine of concurrence. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because God works all things according to the kind intention of his will. That doesn't mean some things. It means all things. Man, that's the kind of God that we serve. The ultimate authority in all things. Whenever I studied Jesus standing before Pilate and standing before Annas and Caiaphas, it was just so familiar to me and I couldn't understand why. And then I started thinking about other occasions where God's people have had to stand and give an account and appeal to ultimate authority before apparent authority. It's this crazy theme in our Bible. Here's some snapshots. The Hebrew midwives standing before Pharaoh. Pharaoh is alarmed because the Hebrew people are so prolific and virile. They have lots of babies and have them fast. I mean, a gestation period is like three months. <laughs> That's not true, but could be. Oh, yeah, thank you. Saved. Pharaoh tells the midwives, he says, hey, you know, these guys are having babies so much, and I'm kind of scared of them because there might be so many of them that they could over, overrun us. I want you to kill them when the, I want you to kill the boys when they're born. And the Hebrew midwives say, um, you know what, Pharaoh? These Hebrew women, they have babies really fast. And when we show up, the baby's already born and it's too late. Too late to kill them. So then he goes with plan B to throw them in the Nile. The reality is the Hebrew midwives feared the ultimate authority more than they feared the apparent. Moses stands before Pharaoh promising the next plague and demanding that Pharaoh let the Israelites go. Moses feared the ultimate authority more than the apparent or perceived. Rahab stands before the king of Jericho. He stands before the king of Jericho. She stands before the king of Jericho having hidden the spies that he's looking for because she feared the ultimate authority more than the apparent. Remember Scott's story last week about Elijah standing before Ahab. Elijah stands before King Ahab and says these words, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, you'll not have rain or dew these years except by my word. It looked like, from all appearances, that Elijah standing before Ahab. But Ahab says, you know what? I stand before the living God. Looks like I'm standing in front of you. But guess who I truly stand before? The ultimate authority. The ultimate reality. 
Esther stands before King Ahasuerus. The fact that Esther even approached the king would mean death. But Esther, appointed for this hour, feared the ultimate authority more than she feared death. Daniel before King Darius. Daniel, like he always did, goes up to his upper room, opens his windows, and he prays to his God. Though the penalty is death by lion. Daniel feared the ultimate authority more than death by lion. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before King Nebuchadnezzar. These men trusted in the ultimate unseen authority more than they feared a furnace in Nebuchadnezzar. There are New Testament examples. The man in John 9 is one of my favorite. Formerly blind man stands before the Pharisees and says, I don't know who it was that healed me, but once I was blind and now I see... They said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, you know, I've told you this already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Standing before ultimate or what he perceives as apparent reality, he appeals to ultimate reality and ultimate authority. Turn to Acts chapter 4. I want to show you one that's very appropriate given that it involves Peter and John. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, And Caiaphas. Those names sound familiar? It's not a different context. Same place where Jesus was crucified. Same characters. Peter and John are all up in the middle of this. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, that's Peter and John, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Whom you crucified. (laughs) Guts, boy. I'm just saying that takes guts. Oh, yeah. that Remember the guy you crucified a few weeks ago? Yeah. By his name, whom God raised from the dead, by the way. It had bumper stickers on the wagons. Show me the body. Show me the body. (laughs) Right? He's wearing a ball cap. Show me the body. By him, this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given by men, or given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. That's what happens when God's people appeal to ultimate authority in the context of apparent authority. 
People are astonished. And then also, this next thing happens. They recognize they had been with Jesus. When you appeal to ultimate authority in this context. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what are we going to do with these men? For that, for that a notable, notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, recognizing ultimate authority, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. He's an old man. More than 40 years old. Man, I love this story. The same authority that crucified Christ and these men these men having seen and experienced the risen Lord stand boldly appealing to ultimate authority in front of apparent authority. And the outcome is these men are astonished. And these men say, you've been with Jesus. We can tell. And then there's the apostles before the high priest and then Stephen before the council and Paul before the council and Paul before Felix and Paul before Agrippa. It seems like God puts his people in situations where they'll have to choose. Am I going to appeal to the ultimate authority in this situation and trust that all things indeed work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose and trust that God's not snoozing? Or am I going to bow to perceived and apparent authority? And in the choosing, they have the opportunity to display ultimate authority and ultimate truth. Now, I feel like in order that we don't create a bunch of people that go to their boss Monday morning and tell them to take that job, so that we don't create a bunch of women that turn to their husbands and say, listen here, buddy. So that we don't create a bunch of church members that say, listen here, pastor. I need to go to a passage in Romans chapter 13. Just listen. You can write this down. It's sort of a side passage, but it's important. Romans chapter 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Man, it's a great example of one passage being completely true, yet not revealing the truth completely. As you read this passage, you have to agree that this is regarding the governing authorities, that there are no qualifiers. 
At least in this passage, it doesn't say follow them if they're good. It says follow all authority because it's been established by God. If we were left with this passage alone, then the Hebrew midwives would have killed the boys. If we were left with this passage alone, Moses won't bother Pharaoh for his people's freedom. If all we had was this passage, Elijah will not resist Ahab. Esther does not approach her king. Daniel does not pray. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kneel to the golden idol. Paul, Peter, and the apostles do what the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Roman authorities demand of them. But what do they do in this context? When man's authority seems contrary to God's design and plan, they say we must obey God rather than men. When man's authority goes a separate direction from God's, we have a call on our lives as believers to appeal to and obey ultimate authority. Like our Lord said to Pilate, your authority is granted. It's granted by the one who's really in control. When you do that, Some of the things will happen in your context that happen in Christ's context. Here, were you speaking with Pilate? He engages Annas. He engages Caiaphas. He engages Pilate truthfully. That's what it says in chapter 18, that he spoke truthfully. In chapter 19, he spoke boldly. And his response in that context, in front of apparent authority, appealing to ultimate authority, made Pilate ask questions like, what is truth? When you appeal to ultimate authority in a context where it looks like a parent authority is in control, it's going to cause people to ask those sort of questions. What is truth? They asked, where are you from? He asked, you are a king? That's the kind of questions that I want y'all to be engaged with. Where is Jesus from? So he's a king? What even is truth? You have opportunities to engage those types of questions when you appeal to ultimate authority in a context where it looks like apparent authorities in control. When you consistently follow ultimate authority. It seems that it's during these occasions of choice when man's direction separates from God's direction that the real authorities put on display. The impact in every single one of these occasions was that God and his ways were on display. I thought about these scenarios. I have three scenarios right at the end of this message. I want you to climb into these scenarios. Either this sermon is equipping you for something that's going to happen to you in the future, or it may be speaking to something you're in right now. So listen. Here's the first scenario. Your context with your boss. He or she demands that you embellish on a report on the status of your project. He tells you to misrepresent some figures or to say something is not true to a client. Suggesting maybe a project's further along than it actually is. He wants you to present the features and benefits of a product when you know full well that they're not true or founded. If you look with your eyes at apparent 
authority. If you don't do what he expects of you, guess what? You get canned. If you look with your eyes, you get canned. And if you get canned, he won't give you a good reference. So you will never be able to get a job again. If you look with your eyes, you'll have to live on the street because you can't get a job. And you'll have to eat dog food for the rest of your life and live in a box. If you look with your eyes, that's what's going to happen, right? But what a great opportunity to trust and appeal to the ultimate authority in this context. What a great opportunity. He seems to have ordained that moment. That opportunity for you to appeal to the ultimate reality. For his own glory. Another scenario is maybe you with the machine. By machine, I'm not talking about your car. I'm talking about the 800-pound gorilla that you work for. Everybody thinks I'm thinking of one specific business. I'm thinking about all your businesses. Because business is challenged right now. I hope all will agree. Times are different now than they were even just a few years ago. Imagine that your business is in a real crunch Like most, your business is trying to get more done with less people. So that means mandatory overtime. Mandatory overtime. You're paid more, but your wife and kids see much less of you. Or when they do, you're really too frustrated and tired to really enjoy them. What a great opportunity to trust in the ultimate authority. I don't want y'all to go quitting your jobs. But I want you in those contexts to appeal to ultimate and absolute authority. Because you're going to be held accountable for how you provided for your family. But above monetary provision for your family, God's going to hold you accountable for how you engaged them. Did you teach them and train them in righteousness? Or did you just bring home a paycheck? Following ultimate authority says, hey boss we got to talk. I need to spend time with my family. Another scenario. You're in an industry that's changing and demanding more and more of your time. <clears throat> you find yourself maybe in the twilight of that industry. Unwilling to look with your heart, you live according to your eyes and scramble to hold on to squeeze the last few drops out of that lemon. It can happen to any of us. And that squeezing is at the expense of being involved in eternal work with God's people. That squeezing can come at the expense of shepherding your wife or serving your husband. It can come at the expense of raising your children and training them in righteousness. What a great opportunity to trust in the ultimate, unseen, but absolute authority. Don't let circumstance become your doggone authority. Please. What a great message is silenced when you do. But an awesome message is heralded when you step out and you say, I'm going to trust God in this situation. He is my absolute reality. He's my ultimate reality. He ordained this time for me to trust him. Man, what a sweet opportunity we have. Every single one of us have all the time. 
to trust in absolute authority. Seeing Christ stand before Pilate and hearing what he says about apparent and ultimate authority must condition and temper our view of daily authority. If it doesn't impact our week, there's a word for that. It's called faithlessness. If it does, if it invades your week, if it changes the lens in which you engage Monday, it's called worship. And I want us all to stand like Elijah and say, I stand before my God. It looks like I stand before you, but I stand before my God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful as we talk about these sort of scenarios as we consider how personal and how difficult and how easy they are to say, but how difficult they may be to walk through. I'm thankful that we have the church. I'm thankful that nobody's going to go hungry. I'm thankful that nobody's going to live on the street, that the people of God are going to come alongside the people of God. Lord, I recognize that the only thing that will keep us from stepping out in that faith place will be pride, fear, faithlessness. I recognize we can't grit our teeth and just try and be the man, but that you have to move us in the direction of faithfulness. And I beg that, Lord. I beg it for your own glory. I beg it so the ultimate authority will be on display in each of our contexts. Lord, I pray in this community that that will become the long arm of evangelism. Is the people of God living salty and bright and aromatic lives. Living according to ultimate reality, ultimate authority, in apparent reality. Well, we can't do this on our own. We walk according to our eyes every day. And walking according to faith is something that you have to work in us. And I'm begging for it for your glory. For your name's sake. I'm thankful for God's word. I'm thankful for this detailed account of your son's cross. I'm thankful for your design in the work of the cross that made a way for us to even enjoy you right now. Lord, we continue to enjoy you this morning in song and in giving and in fellowship. We pray that it'll be a sweet aroma. Christ's name we pray. Amen. My hope this morning is you are enjoying a God who has ultimate authority. A memory verse for our kids this morning is Psalm 44, 4. It says, You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob, which indeed he has done. Jacob being the children of promise, us. It's our story. I hope you heard this morning as the word is spoken of God's authority in salvation. And that picture of it, that you can rest in that. 
Before we have this supper this morning, I want you to hear from Romans 9. Speaking of an all-powerful, ultimate authority God. This is Paul as he speaks in Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for that all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Ultimate authority. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Ultimate authority. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not blessed, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 
And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we prepare to take this supper, I pray that our hope is fully resting on you. Father, that the finished work of Christ is not a quippy saying for us, but it's a truth. You have ordained our salvation. And our worship this morning is in you. Our faith is in you. Our hope is in you. None of those things are in ourselves. We have no faith in our ability to have faith in you, to meet the expectation of the law, to be good enough that our good would outweigh our bad. But Father, this morning we rest fully on the finished work of Christ that you have ordained with ultimate authority. Father, by your spirit, allow us to examine ourselves truthfully this morning. Spiritual eyes opened by you. Examine our worship. Examine our walk. Examine our oneness as the body of Christ. Are we loving and submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ? Or do we bicker and do we divide? Father, are we loving and gentle and kind? Or are we easily offended? Always hurt? Father, draw us to a satisfaction in Christ. Give us eyes to see him as sufficient. Father, we're so thankful for your word, the authority of your spoken word and your written word and the truth of it. We're thankful for Christ this morning. Father, I pray that you would give us a hunger for righteousness and a thirst for righteousness. As we take this supper this morning, may we be reminded of Christ, not our efforts, not our ability to be good, all sufficient. all-sufficient finished work of Christ. In his precious name we pray. I'll tell you one of the things I'm sure of this morning is uh, this is a real sober thing. I hope, you know, I'm thinking, I've seen some folks that I haven't seen before or folks that I've only seen a few times. When I, we're talking about eternal matters, 
And we're talking about being Christ in dark and difficult contexts, not Christ himself, but bearing his message in a dark and difficult context. A chipper is just inappropriate. It just is. It doesn't equip either. So I hope you recognize sobriety and seriousness in this church. I hope that would be true of every church. When we're talking about eternal matters, we're talking about lives responding to a message every week. If all this was each week was just kind of affirming the direction you're already in, go, Gary, good job, you know. Man, what, how, how fun and easy would that be? There's a different sort of reward, though, each week in walking in the exposed word. But realize lives are transformed and changed. Directions are changed in response to sermons. That's the way it's supposed to be. This isn't a talky-talk. And you're not here to hear a talky-talk. You're here to hear words of life from the living God. And that's going to mean change of direction. It's going to mean sobriety. You're being equipped for something that maybe you're in the middle of right now. Or maybe you're like, man, that wasn't even really on my radar. I don't know that I need that right now. I bet you will. (laughs) I'm telling you, that's just the way he operates. He equips you oftentimes in times of peace so that you'll be ready in times of war. But you have to be sober in times of peace and say, I need the goods so I can engage this occasion ready. Sometimes you're just right in the middle of the thick of it and you're like, man, this is apples of gold and fields of silver. This is what I needed right at that moment. And other times you're being equipped for a future moment. But it's all serious and it all matters. And you got to know too that we cut up, but we don't cut up right here. This isn't a time for jokey chipper. Those are other times for real, but not here. Let me introduce a family for membership. Come on up here, Keelings. This is Lance and Sarah and Joshua and Caleb. And these boys are just very interactive in the sermon. I don't know if y'all know that or not, but I love that. I'm telling you, it's not a disruption for me. I enjoy, I'll say something and I'll hear Joshua respond. There's just, there are no hypothetical questions for a child that age. He asked me a question, I'm going to give an answer. Um, Chris, uh, uh, I guess, how long ago was that that we had a chance to come down there? March or something like that? Last year? About a year ago? August. August. It hasn't been that long. <laughs> um, I had the chance to go down to visit this family in the southernmost state in Mexico. It's called Chiapas is the name of the state. They're specifically located in Teopisco, which is a city in Chiapas. And uh, they've been working with an orphanage down there for how many years now? Three and a half. Three and a half years. And uh, I went down there with Daniel and Scott McCullough and Nathan Green. We went down there to visit this family to kind of see what God was doing down there. We went down there with the purpose of possibly trying to discern what role we should have as a church in their ministry down there. But possibly not. We went down there with the consideration that maybe we're just going down to see what God's doing and just kind of speak into it as maybe you know, believing flies on the wall. You know, men that love the Lord and can kind of speak into their context and encourage them and leave and say, peace and grace to you, bro. I mean, God loves you and press on. We kind of left with the latter. 
we kind of left with the consideration or the realization that these guys have been part of an orphanage, working with an orphanage that has a church that's part of it, which we're thankful for. But that we as a church wanted to be involved where the church is weak or non-existent in church planting. There's nothing wrong with ministry, which is really what was going on and still is going on. In the months since then, Lance and Sarah have been burdened to start a church in Teopisca. And that's pretty exciting because it is a place where the church is, church is weak or non-existent. And it's, it's weak. I, I guess we could, we, and Lance and Sarah would agree with me on that. It's very health and wealth sort of message. Or it's sort of a Mayan Catholicism, Mayan-influenced influenced Catholicism. And there doesn't seem to be a Christ-centered sort of message being proclaimed and enjoyed there by people. So Lance and Sarah are burdened to do that. So they're here with us for the next four or five months at this point, and uh, they are expecting. So they're going to be back in Mexico, hopefully, in time to have the baby there. So they have some citizenship stuff that uh, both of the kids are dual citizenship, what they like. It makes for easier movement back and forth. So that's kind of what we're shooting for. But what we're hoping to do in the next four or five months is for this family to walk with us, to be known by us, to know us, and for us to possibly, if the Lord wills it, for us to send them and possibly send some people with them. Like some of y'all to like leave the states and to go be part of the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, why not? For real. Some of y'all might have been sitting here going, man, that industry that's languishing, that's kind of tanking right now, that's me. I don't think there's, there's no such thing as coincidence. God works all things according to the kind intention of his will. So you might be one that's a family that's supposed to go with this family. I don't know. I don't know. We may be sending them by themselves, but they're not going to go if they're sent by us by themselves in spirit. They may be going physically. But they're here to member with us for the next four or five months. And from that point on, the Lord wills it. So um, I've spent time with them. I've heard their testimony. And they've uh, agreed with our membership covenant, which is really what membership is. We... Uh, whenever someone desires that, we like to hear your, your testimony and as much as possible to uh, discern whether you have a relationship with the Lord, answer any questions that you have, and then talk through a membership covenant. So we've done this with his family, and they want to come as members this morning. And they're part of a, a small group. They've connected to a small group already. So they are walking with us in that way. So I encourage you to get to know this family. Have them over for dinner. They're living with his parents right now. It's about 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes away or so, something like that. So we're having to work to get them in here. We're, our deacons right now are working on getting them here in town in an apartment or a, a house or something so they're close and so they're connected. Easier, easier to be connected with this body. So, but in the meantime, let's work at getting to know them. So I encourage you, invite them over to your house. Feed them a meal. Spend time with them. Something about eating together where you get to know people. So y'all stand and I'll dismiss you and we can. When I dismiss you, come up and meet this family. Okay, let's pray. God, you're so good. We're so thankful for your design in um, leading families, men into this body that are burdened to plant. Families that are burdened to go. Lord, we just pray that we'll be faithful to, uh, if you give us wood to make arrows. And, um, Lord, we ultimately recognize that you are the doer there. And if you would give us a, a privilege of being a part of that sort of work, we would we, uh, just ask for faithfulness in it and pray that we'll walk in it. Lord, too, I 
in front of the body right now. I pray for the body to be part of this work. This is not just something that the elders are doing or the deacons are doing, but that all the body is part of. And I just pray that they'll see themselves as a key um, ingredient in this preparation for the field to take planting to uh, a place where the church is weak. Lord, we love you. We count you uh, great and glorious, and we enjoy you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all come meet this family.